Morning, Grace. <laughs> I have some great news, at least great news for us. Uh, have a new grandbaby, new granddaughter, right here. Boom. Rosemary Jane Cassidy, twice the fun now. Uh, saw a great quote. Grandparents are here to help the child get into mischief they haven't thought of yet. So I am playing my part here. Wow. Okay, anyway, anyway I thought you'd want to know. Uh, people have been asking. Hey, if you'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 16, we're uh, finishing up on our series uh, on the upper room. We've spent, not, this is our ninth week here. Just to remind you of the context, this is uh, the night that Jesus is betrayed, and literally just hours before he's going to be tortured and then executed, he's with his 11 faithful disciples. They're faithful up to this point, for sure. And he's going to give them his, their last set of most intimate teaching. But they just don't seem to understand what's happening. They don't grasp many of the words that Jesus is saying. They think it's just another amazing Passover with the Messiah himself. Here it is. And somewhere in there, they hear Jesus say it multiple times, but they grasp that he's, when he says, I am going to leave you. And they're just shocked. So he says, let not your heart be troubled. And then he says, my peace I leave me, leave you, my peace I give you. And then he says again, let not your heart be troubled. And in, in, the, in between those you know, exclamations of do not let your heart be troubled, he's going to tell us so many different reasons why it's really good that he leaves. As a matter of fact, if they were able to hear through the fear and the confusion, the, the disciples should have said, you know, Jesus, you should leave. <laughs> Can you imagine? Jesus, you should leave. I can't imagine saying that, but that's what the message that Jesus says. He says it twice. In chapter 14, he says, uh, you heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, if you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to be to, with the Father. And then in chapter 16, and we're going to look at this today, he says, rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things, but, but truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So, <laughs> Jesus, you should leave. He gives, he gives multiple reasons why it's good that he leaves. He says, I'm leaving because I'm going to prepare a home for you. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going to prepare those rooms for you. The family of God's living under one rooftop. Well, Jesus, you should, you should leave then. <laughs> Later on, he'll say that he's going to give us an eternal mission. Jesus says that I'm, I'm leaving and I'm delegating a, a purpose and meaning in life to you. You're going to do what I've been doing and even more so. Well, that's awesome. Jesus, you should leave then. He's going to tell us that we are in continual prayer, that he promises that if you ask anything in his name, he'll do that so that the son can glorify the father. You ask anything that's going to give glory to the father in the context of what his uh, divine will might be, he'll, he's going to answer that. We're in constant communication with, with the triune God. So, Jesus, you should leave. And then here's one more reason that we're going to look at, and that is the constant companion, the Holy Spirit. This is the introduction 
to the Holy Spirit in the entire Bible for the most part. Verse 7, he says, but very truly I tell you, it is for your own good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So today we're going to look at another introduction to the Holy Spirit. We saw that in our third week of the series, I think. And now today, specifically, Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit so that we might experience a supernatural salvation, a supernatural salvation. Look what it says in verses 8 through 11. And when he comes, the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, concerning sin, because they do, they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will, not, you will see me no longer. And verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He's sending the advocate, the counselor. Those are words, think of them in the legal context. The counselor is like a, a lawyer. Hey, counselor, you need to defend your client. In the context of the Holy Spirit coming as an advocate and a counselor, he comes working both sides. He comes to advocate for us to the Father, but he also comes as a prosecuting attorney to, con to convict us. And you can see that in this passage. He's going to convict us of various things. Now, before we look at this, I want us to just stop and ponder this historic truth. How is it that Christianity has survived 2,000 years against all odds? It is, it is the graveyard of empires. Christianity goes into an empire. The empire can come or, you know, come or go or can die, and Christianity thrives in that. And when you think about it, like the messengers themselves, right? Look at the people that Jesus sends out. Common people, fishermen, accountants, whatever. And they don't have a lot of status is the point. And they're from Israel. They're Jewish. And that has no clout, politically speaking, in those times. And Jesus sends, to those, sends those people out and says, go out to the world and turn it upside down. And if the messengers themselves were quite bland, the message, the message is humorous at best and insulting at worst. It, you have to hear it for the first time. We've gotten too used to it. But think about what's happening in the message itself to the two major audiences. First, to the Jews. The Jews are hearing this message from these common people, that the one true God, the uncreated creator, the king of all the universe has become like a, a penniless, itinerant preacher who was eventually crucified by Rome and is not going to set the nation of Israel free. And if that weren't bad enough, the message of Jesus is the most righteous of you are in a moral debt that you cannot fathom. That your most righteous actions are like filthy, stinking rags in the presence of God. Well, that's not a nice message. Not to that audience. And then you look at the Greco-Roman audience that's all around. Most of them, you know, the intellectual community, disciples of Socrates and, and Plato and Aristotle. They would believe in what were called uh, ideals, like truth and beauty and justice 
They were the immaterial ideals. And they had to be immaterial because the purity required them to be not in the physical world. And the message to them was those ideals became historic particular, something that could be touched. And not only that, flesh. They thought that a human body couldn't contain those sorts of perfection. And, and that flesh was executed as a criminal in a no-count suburb of Rome. And if that weren't bad enough, the message said that unless you believe the teachings of Jesus, that you're not just lost, but you're a fool. Greeks didn't like being called a fool. So you look at the messengers that were sent and the message itself, and you have to wonder, how did it, how did it last five months to two years? It's a historical question. Why would anyone listen to that? And how does Christianity continue to survive in every part of the world, in every empire, in almost any circumstance, except prosperity in many ways, and the gospel message just continues to bury the pallbearers that think they're going to put this thing down. You might be thinking, well, they, they had dedicated followers. Well, there's a lot of religious and irreligious groups that have very dedicated followers that will give their life for whatever that message might be. What does Christianity have? Well, if you're thinking a resurrected Savior, <laughs> then you're right. That's for sure. That's that's a significant part of the message. That's the Easter resurrection story itself. But in the context of what we're looking at right here, I want us to focus on this. That the reason Christianity thrives is because it's not like anything else. It's not a different in degree. It's a different in kind. It is a supernatural salvation. Because Jesus leaves to send the advocate, right, the counselor. In other words, Jesus didn't just send the disciples out on mission. He is sending the Holy Spirit as a missionary. The Holy Spirit is a missionary. And he goes ahead of all the messengers and convicts the souls of people in sin and righteousness and judgment. You can't, you can't take the Holy Spirit out of this equation because he's the integral part. The Bible says clearly that Christianity is different in kind, not in degree, because it is intrinsically changing. It is something that happens within our spirit that breaks out in our beliefs and our lifestyle. It says that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, in, invades our ego and causes it to break out with a whole new paradigm of life. More than courageous messengers... It's the Holy Spirit that precedes the message itself. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's a supernatural salvation. That he's, Jesus sends the advocate, the counselor, and it says to convict. Can just be thinking in what we're going to look at today, a, a prosecuting attorney putting any and every soul on the stand and just going back and forth interrogating them cross-examining them, getting us into this, boxing us into this inescapable, inescapable awareness of, of a shadow life that we live, that, that, that we cannot escape 
and believe that we could have a, a, a right standing before God without a supernatural intervention from him. He invades our moments of reflection, and hopefully this is your story where it's on a long walk or during a shower or a restless night, driving to work, and the, the tranquility of our life under control is now in violation because the Spirit comes in and He convicts us. He convicts us of our sin, not sins. He convicts us of a need for external or a foreign righteousness. He convicts us that we should be living under a different ruler. As a disciple of Christ, when we look at this passage together, here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at this. If you're already a follower of Christ, I want you to look at it in, in retrospect, in, in remembrance. And I want you to see how the Spirit was working in your life, maybe with new awareness. That it didn't just happen, and that it was Him pulling and pushing all along, the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see how in, incremental, or in, I'm sorry, uh, how absolutely necessary it was for the Holy Spirit to be involved in these three different expressions of conviction. And then if you're seeking Christianity, I want you to realize why you might be so restless and why you might be having thoughts that you hadn't had before. Why your soul feels stirred up. There's three reasons. One is conviction of sin. Verse 9, concerning sin, sin, because they do not believe in me. He doesn't say concerning sins. It's easy for any of us to admit that we've done something wrong or committed some kind of crime, a vice in our life. He says sin, singular. And the reason the sin needs to be convicted, you can see he's connecting it, because they do not believe in me. They don't believe in the one true God, and they do not believe in the one he sent, Jesus, and his message. And this has to be first. Because the message of the gospel is entirely contingent on our need to understand that we have a problem. If we don't think we have a problem, we might be kind of upset we're getting a solution thrown at us. Like, uh, have you ever tried to help someone find the need to go and see medical help? Like, go see a doctor, you, like, you sit down with them, you're like, hey, like, you have all the symptoms of this particular illness. Look, let's go to the internet. I've got a pamphlet. That's when you really win the argument, right? I got a pamphlet. That's why they have pamphlets at the doctor's office. It's for you to understand what you might have so you'll have a talk or for you to give to your friend and say, you need this. You're trying, you are, you are being an advocate for health. You're trying to convince them, convict them that they need something that they don't think they think they need. Um, Let's, here's another way of looking at it. Okay. Remember before we had smartphones and all the fancy ways of getting around the world? Remember when we just went places? How long does it take a man to admit that he needs to stop for directions? Remember those days? Like, you're, we're lost. I'm not lost. You know? And then eventually it's like, see, honey, here we are. You know, Lake Buchanan. And then she says, that's the Pacific Ocean. I told you we were lost. A person won't ask for help until... They feel they need help. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. The Holy Spirit's job is to get us ready so the teacher would be appear. His job is to convict us that we can't fix this and we need to be open to an answer that what can. 
He will convict us not of sins, but of sinfulness. Sinfulness. And it has to happen first. The love for our Savior will be equal to the love, the, the, the desperation of our problem. So if we don't think we have a problem and we hear the message of the gospel, we're annoyed. That makes perfect sense. It's an insult. If we think we have a small problem, then we're, well, that's a nice message. Thanks for the help. If we realize we're hopeless and helpless, now we can fully appreciate what the message is and the Savior himself. And the Bible says this, that we would be overflowing with gratitude. We would be living off of love if we believe this to be true, what the Spirit is saying. And that is that the only way that we could possibly be acquitted in the eyes of God from our debt and our shame and the powerlessness that we live in is through believing in the one true God and the one he sent, Jesus the Christ who died and rose again to make it right. That's what he's out to do. That's what he's trying to convince us of. If we don't have that, then we can't, if we don't see the problem, we can't appreciate all that God has done for us. Jesus does the math in real time. He's, he's showing us kind of the algebra equation here. And it's not a parable. It's, it's happening. Jesus is visiting a religious leader and when he comes in, he's greeted at the door. They're having dinner. And then the dinner is crashed by a woman of ill repute. And she falls to the ground at his feet and then starts washing his feet with her tears, drying them with her hair. Then she's kissing his feet and then breaks this vial of perfume all over. Right, Everybody, if you missed it before, you can smell it now, causing quite a stir. And so people start talking. If Jesus knew who she was and what she'd done, maybe he wouldn't be so agreeable to what's happening here. Jesus knows that. And that's when he does the math that we're talking about. He says, Simon, let me ask you a question. Uh, somebody's been forgiven much. They love much, right? And he goes, yeah. And they've been forgiven little debt. They love little, right? Yeah, I get it. Well, here's the thing. When I walked through your door, no one washed my feet, which is customary, but look at her. She's washing my feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. When I came through the threshold here, there was not even a welcome kiss. <laughs> she won't stop kissing my feet. When I came in, it's usual that we are greeted with uh, having oil pulled, poured over our head. I got none of that from you. And look at her precious perfume. Not on my head, but on my feet. So what you're seeing here is a person that's forgiven much, and now she loves much. And it's very unfortunate. The whole room goes, oh. Yeah, she has a lot of sins, and that is not what Jesus was saying. She understood her sinfulness. Those religious leaders were just as sin-filled they thought it was about sins. It's the Spirit of God that comes in and says, no, 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 these little pricks of your conscience is not what he's after. It's about the very nature of our spirit before God. The Spirit comes in and says, look, I've got to convict you of sin because, 
because you don't believe you need a Savior, right? Because you don't believe in Jesus. In the, in the deepest part of your soul, you think, I got this. I am presentable to God. Usually, we, there's like two avenues that people go through to think that they don't need a Savior, that they're presentable. One is just self-righteousness. I think they're doing enough good things. Usually, it's a temperamental. Sometimes, it's temperamental. It's a compliant personalities that are highly disciplined, and they can just keep a lot of the rules. And they look around, especially when they find themselves comparing themselves to others, because that's the standard. They win. And they're especially gravitating towards people where they do win. I, I remember when I, was, when I was younger, in college, I had a good friend that was good night. He was a big troublemaker, and that's why we were friends. And his, uh, his name is Bill. And when, when he changed his life and became a follower of Christ, his lifestyle changed. Now, what was really funny is a lot of our friends started deeply resenting Bill, not because he was a troublemaker, but now he's a follower of Christ. <laughs> they resented him because of his new moral standard of living. And there were a couple of like, near fights that broke out. And then finally, we were able to sit some of the guys down and figure it out. Here's why. They hated his goodness because it made them look bad. See, there was always Bill. Well, I'm not as bad as Bill. Well, Bill became like Christ, and now they're like, uh-oh. <laughs> Who's at the bottom of the righteousness pile now? Their standard was broken, and they saw themselves for what they were. A person living in this self-righteous way, they, when they find themselves embarrassed by sin, it's not sin against God, it's against their own reputation of being that guy or that person, that girl. And so the Holy Spirit comes into that life and says, you're good, it's not good enough. It, it won't work with the standards of God. And when the Spirit comes in, he'll, he'll reveal that even your good works are putrid in the presence of God. And it makes a person want to, like, pursue what God has available, what Jesus' claims are. Another way that people try to find themselves presentable to God is not this self-righteous and, and moralistic living. It's, it's a version of that. It's, it's through self-hatred. Now, it it's, looks like it's the opposite of this, but they're very related. It's when a person does something wrong and they say, I hate, hate hate myself. Self-loathing is a form of penance for this type of personality. And they just, they think this, that if they beat themselves enough and hate themselves enough, they will crucify themselves. They'll pay for their sins. Then they'll be acceptable. They'll come into the presence of God and say, look how loathsome I am towards my own evil. And the Spirit of God comes into that life and convicts them of not their sins, but their sinfulness. And says, your, your best penance can't fix this. Oh, God. I, you don't fully grasp the depth of your crimes against God. And you've got to give up on earning your position in the presence of God by, by your self-hatred. He convicts 
Some that your good is not good enough, and he convicts others that your bad isn't bad enough, <laughs> that you need a Savior. Convict them of sin because they do not believe in me. And so you give up hope in this self-righteousness, or you give up hope in this self-penance, and you surrender your debt to God. Do you remember do you remember the moment in your life where you said to God these two words, I quit. I quit. I'm not trying anymore. I can't be good enough and I can't hate myself enough. I, I've got to leave. I've got to leave this economy. That was the Spirit of God convicting you of sin. And it's time to believe in the message and the messenger. Jesus Christ. Second thing the Spirit does, it says it convicts of righteousness. This is interesting. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. It's not just that uh, the Spirit is going to convince us and convict us that we have this debt to pay. And it's not that Jesus' death and resurrection just zeroes out our, our debt or a balance to God. We find ourselves needing more to be in His presence. In other words, we can't just go there uh, instead of with, with dreadful, stinky clothes on, now we're, we got those taken off in justification, but like how do we get clothed in righteousness? The Bible says that the Spirit convicts us that we need a different kind of righteousness, not our own. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It has the power of God in salvation. And then soon after that, he says, that this righteousness comes through faith, not in works. The Spirit convicts us there's this infinite gap between our lives, even justified, and the holiness of God, and that has to be gapped by the righteousness of Christ, of Jesus. We don't need to be made better. We need to be made new. We need to have another, another phrase. It's called a foreign righteousness given to us. And how do we get the foreign righteousness? It's a gift. The second part of this conviction here is, is the understanding that it's, it's not my righteousness that needs to be improved upon, that I have nothing to bring in the context of having an audience with the holiness of God. I need His righteousness given to me as a gift. It is a gift. Just like all parts, aspects of salvation, it is a blessing from God. So we talk about God all the time. It's, it's interesting. Here's, here's kind of the way it, it might roll out in your life. Here's how it sounds sometimes. Is we have a forgiveness experience in our life, and then we have this intuitive thought, okay, I've been forgiven. Now I need to get to work. I've, he's granted me debt-free life, morally speaking, and now he's zeroed out my account. Now I have to earn his love. Still on this earning thing. I think there's something has to happen from me to him. And then, boom. The Spirit comes and convicts you of, about righteousness because he's returned to the Father. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he is arguing our case, saying that righteousness, that man or woman has, that's my righteousness. 
Sometimes it happens to us like it's, it's a strange event where many of you have some kind of church experience in this second conviction where you grew up going to a good Bible teaching church. You memorized really holy writ, good verses that are true. You sang hymns that were full of beautiful doctrine about righteousness. But you're still on this treadmill of trying to earn God's love and favor so that he'll like you. Then, boom. You realize working on your own goodness, you start recalling. Here's, here's what I'm trying to get you to remember. You remember the time that you recalled a Bible verse that you remembered so you could get some badge? And that's why, you know, it's, it was all about the badges anyway. And, and then you read it, and it's like in Galatians, where it says, uh, what, you be, what, you be, what God began as a gift, are you going to now perfect in works? What? <laughs> he says, you foolish Galatians, what you began in the Spirit, are you going to perfect in works? What? And then it'll say just a little later on, if, like, if righteousness could be had through works, then Christ died needlessly. Why send a Savior if you could do this? And you see it, and you go, it was there all the time. Salvation by grace. Righteousness is included in that. It's, it's imputed. It's in part. It's outside, foreign, given to us. It's the righteousness of Jesus. That's the conviction. And then when that happens, we find ourselves at peace with God and no longer working, just receiving. Convicted for sinfulness. And right, self-righteousness and self-loathing doesn't work that we believe in the message and the messenger, and now be convicted for righteousness, that all the, all the necessary things are required, and we don't have shame before God. We have honor that we've received from Jesus. And the last thing that the Spirit does is convict us of judgment. This is about power. Listen, this is about power. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The prince of the world has been cast out. Know this, if, if this is all you hear. Salvation is about who has a right to rule creation. Salvation is about who has a right to rule creation. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's your kingdom, it's your rule. And so what's happening here is, is it's like that... Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been defeated, has been judged, has been cast out. If, if you're not following Jesus, if he's not ruling your life, then you're being ruled by the world, by Satan, by his schemes. And it usually looks like you're being ruled by your own ego. When you do whatever you want, you're just dancing to the tunes of the devil. And when, he, when, the, when we're convicted of, of of judgment here in the concerning judgment, we, we are set free from that. We realize we don't have to live with that anymore. The, free, the Bible says, well, let me, you know what? Bob Dylan says, let's just do Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan says, you may serve the devil or you may serve the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. And the conviction of the Spirit is that judgment is over. You don't have to serve the devil anymore. Paul says it like this. You're going to serve somebody. Don't you realize that you become a slave to whatever you choose to obey? 
You can become a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once you were slaves to sin, but it came under judgment. But now you wholeheartedly obey the teachings that we have given you. Now you are free for what? From your slavery to sin so that you can become slaves to righteous living. Now that you're free because judgment has happened to the evil one and your evil ego, you are now free to be slaves to God and his righteousness. Now there's a new king in your life. It's not your self-centeredness. Now the king is Jesus. Now you pray the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in my life as it will be done in heaven. Look at the power we're talking about here. If you look at this passage, there's at least three applications that I came up with kind of quick, if you don't mind. First one is, in your conversations and in your heartfelt desire to help someone understand the gospel and the claims of Jesus Christ, sometimes we can feel like defeated or discouraged or sometimes even angry. And a lot of times it's because we're not playing our part. If you look at this passage carefully, it says, look, play your part. Stay in your lane. Let the Holy Spirit do the heavy lifting. You can't convict someone of sin. It's too deep of an issue. It's a supernatural event. Don't be trusting in your eloquence. So in your conversation, one of the best things you can do for a friend, a family member, someone you want to talk to about Christ is, according to this, pray. Pray for the Holy Spirit to do his work in that person's life, that the Holy Spirit would go and have an ego-piercing conviction to convince them of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then you come in and just speak truth and love. So I just want to remind you, prayer is the power because the power is in the Holy Spirit. In your own life, I feel like the, just a review of what the Spirit has done in our lives is a trip down memory lane is a very good and a powerful thing. Sometimes we forget how bad we were and all that Christ has done for us. And when we see what the Spirit's doing in our life, we're supposed to be living as we are infinitely loved. And because of that, we're released and have freedom to obey. We should live courageous lives with our head up and our shoulders back because the King has not just relieved us of our debt, but given us his honor and has set us free from the domain of the world. Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, couldn't get through the sermon without quoting him. He says this, the stars may fall from heaven, but his love for me will stand because his love for me is not based on my perfection. It's based on his perfection. The determining factor of my relationship with the Father is not my past or my present, but Christ's past and Christ's present. That's how we're supposed to live. Here's a third application, and that's if you're seeking the truths of the gospel, the one true God and the one whom he sent. You need to understand it might be the spirit working in your life convicting you that your best isn't good enough and your, your debt payments are not even a drop in an ocean. You have to quit that whole way 
of thinking you can have forgiveness. You have to understand that uh, you're not forgiven in the context of righteousness so that you can now be on a forever performance review and always be checking in and God has his list of stuff. No, his righteousness is given to you as a gift as well. And the last thing is listen. You don't have to live in this dominion of darkness where you just do whatever makes you feel good, look good, feel satisfied. You can be given a new king. There's, there's no debt, there's no shame, and there's no power. Or there's, there's power now over that. No authority in your life except God himself. That's what we learn here. When you see this passage... We're supposed to say, wow, Jesus, you should leave. <laughs> How, let me get the door for you. I know it's, uh, it's hard to even say that, but Jesus says it twice. He says, I need to leave so I can prepare a place for you for eternity, so I can give you a mission and a cause, so I can like, answer your prayers, and so that I can send a supernatural salvation to you. That's why he says, my peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. I'm going to have to leave to make that happen. So he did. And now we can appreciate it. It's still hard for me to say it. Jesus, you should leave. There's another thing, pause. There's another thing that we get with the Holy Spirit I'd like to bring up. And that is when the Holy Spirit comes into your spirit, the moment it happens, it's like a, you know, if you ever had a social event and someone brings a gift, a housewarming gift, it's like that. The Holy Spirit shows up into our souls into our spirits, and he gives us a gift. In the Bible, it's called a spiritual gift. And he gives us that gift to help us build up the church and help each other so that we might become like Christ in all of life. A spiritual gift is this. Spiritual gifts are gifts to do certain things well, given by the Holy Spirit for the edification of the church. We're all gifted to serve. And we're going to spend the next two weeks talking more about the spiritual gifts, and then we're going to spend the next uh, 10 years re-emphasizing it. We're going to say over and over again, hey, what's your spiritual gifts and how are you using it at the church? So here's how we can get started on this. This is your homework assignment for this week. Everybody go online, click the, go to the website, grace360.org, and right at the cover page, there's going to be this gifted to serve logo. Go there. There's a spiritual gifts assessment tool and you're going to take, you know, little simple questions and at the end of those, it's going gonna, it's gonna to print out for you like three of the top three possible spiritual gifts you might have. In the next two or three weeks, in the next 10 days or 10 years, we'll be talking about how to use those gifts in the local church. But here's everybody that's listening, that visits. This is your home, church. Go and take that assessment so we can all be on the same page, especially starting next week. Would you do that? Sure, I'll do that. Well, let's end today with uh, thankful. <laughs> it's really hard for me to say this, that we can be thankful that Jesus left. I don't, still can't, I've said it two hours now. I still can't, I say it six times each hour. And just, it's hard to believe, but that's what he said. It must be true. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are glad you left. I still can't, I don't know. We are glad you left because now the Holy Spirit indwells every spirit of every believer and even to get there, your spirit proceeded and convicted us of our sin. 
And what a dreadful moment that was. But it led to us quitting. Quitting. Trying to earn your approval through good deeds or self-deprecation. And set us free from that. You gave us your righteousness. We thank you that your spirit would convict us. That we can't even clean up our own righteousness and make it worthy of being in your presence. And finally, that we're no longer pawns of this culture, of this world, and our own pride. We can turn our lives over to you. Thy kingdom come. Your will be done in my life, in my choices. We're grateful for the Spirit, not just convicting of us of those things, but giving us the power to live a life that doesn't just have a supernatural salvation, but a supernatural lifestyle that reflects that. A life filled with God's stories because your spirit lives within us. We're glad you left so that your spirit could live within us. We pray that we might live lives in a way that would give you glory. That all that we speak of and brag about is you and what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.